Hey, it's Sarah. That's What She Said with Sarah Spain is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Don't forget to check out Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. She kicked off season four with Academy Award winner Natalie Portman. And I have a feeling a lot more big-name guests are going to be on the way. Julie, Natalie, and a host of other powerful women are part of the ownership group of Angel City FC, which is the newest NWSL Soccer League franchise. Find Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts. It was a great conversation. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My guests this week are the amazing, incredible, inspiring, brilliant, adorable, successful, badass, powerful, funny, smart, legendary, wonderful, life goals, BFF goals, marriage goals, Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle. They joined me for a panel at this year's virtual ESPNW Summit, which was a huge success. And by the way, if you missed any of it and you want to check out the magic, it can be viewed in its entirety online. You can select which panels you're interested in. Go check it out. Uh, We talked about so many things and really got to the heart of some of the biggest challenges and opportunities we face as a society and how to approach them. Both of these women are incredibly inspirational in the ways that they take the ideas and things they care about and put them into action. Uh, You might remember Glennon was on this podcast not long ago talking about her new book, Untamed. Um, If you miss it, definitely go back and listen to that one. It was amazing. And if you haven't read the book, what are you doing? Come on, order it immediately. And if you order it right now, actually, she's doing uh, signed copies at select indie bookstores to help support them during COVID. So if you check out her Instagram, you can find the post. Find an indie bookstore near you or one that will uh, ship one to you, and you can get a signed copy. Uh, You guys are going to love this conversation. Enjoy. That's what she said. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I am so excited for the next panel. When I found out I got to talk to these two ladies, I've literally been looking forward to it for the month plus since it it came out that I was going to get to chat with them. And I want to start by reading a quote that sort of uh, shook me to the core when I first saw it and feels like the mantra for women of a certain age and of a certain uh, post-enlightenment moment for them. It's attributed to writer Sophie Haywood, and it goes like this. The older I get, the more I see how women are described as having gone mad when what they've actually become is knowledgeable and powerful and really bleeping furious. The next two women are knowledgeable and powerful and while they are only occasionally furious, when they are, they put that anger to good use and we should be paying a lot of attention. Glennon Doyle, Abby Wambach, before you say hi, I gotta go through these incredible things that you've done. Glennon, author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Untamed, over a million copies sold in fewer than 20 weeks. Also number one New York Times bestseller, Love Warrior and Carry On Warrior. You channeled your anger into becoming the founder and president of Together Rising, all women-led nonprofit organization that's revolutionized grassroots philanthropy raising over $27 million for women, families, and children in crisis, and into your current We Can Do Hard Things campaign, 40 Days of Outrage to Action, mobilization efforts uh, leading up to the election. 
Abby Wambach, two-time Olympic gold medalist, FIFA World Cup champ, six-time winner of the U.S. Soccer Athlete of the Year Award, also a New York Times bestselling author, Wolfpack, and the new Wolfpack Young Readers Edition. You channeled your anger into co-founding Wolfpack Endeavor, a training program that's revolutionizing leadership development for women in the workplace and beyond. You're also on the board of directors for Together Rising, and you helped inspire that powerhouse group of women, including Natalie and Julie, that we just heard from for the brand new NWSL team, literally changing the face of sports team ownership. So now, oh, you've got the gear on too. God, I can't wait Let's till go. I get my merch. I literally already texted Fowdy, when am I getting my merch and hanging out with you guys? Um, we had a pre-call, and as I've just said all of those wonderful things about you, we decided the only way to start this panel was to first talk about um, all the things we don't like about ourselves and why we're terrible failures, because no one wants to listen to a bunch of badass women talk about how great they are. So I will start. Uh, most of this hair is faker than the background behind me. It is not this sunny, and there are not people walking around behind me. Uh, the hair is fake, and also when I get really nervous, instead of pitting out, I sometimes uh, sweat through my underwear. So that's hot and great, and now I I've shared that. What about you okay. guys? There we go. Yeah, I love the sweating. I'm a sweaty sweaterton yeah. too. Actually, I only wear tank tops because my sweating gets so serious. So I'm just going to do that now. <laughs> Perfect. We're just roving already. Good start. Feel comfortable. Uh, Abby, what's wrong me, with you? I wish that I, wish that I um, liked working out more in my retirement. Um, it is a grind every single day. Um, and believe me, like I, I, I loathe this part of my personality because I just dread it until I do it and then I'm fine. But like, I can't stop dreading and it. And Sarah, she tried to get me for so long to run with her. And one day <laughs> she came home and I was laying on the couch and she said, I just heard on this podcast that for every mile you run, it adds seven minutes to your life. And I was like, okay, well, it takes me 16 minutes to run a mile. So so I'm losing life. Like it's actually killing me. <laughs> I like that you. I like that you rationalized your way out of that using facts and figures. That's that's, that's the way to do it. Yeah, math. Yeah. Um, let's start there though. Why do we have to do that, Glennon? You talk about this in your book, and it's such a hilarious thing to read because we've all been there. You're watching like a 12 year old soccer player, and she's making you angry because she's proud of herself. Yeah. I mean, I started noticing that a lot after Abby and I met and I would be at speaking events and somebody would raise their hand and say, Glennon, you know, when you used to talk about depression and addiction and how hard life was, I used to just relate to you so much. But now since you're, you know, happy and you found Abby and you've become more successful, I just find it harder and harder to relate to you. Mm. And I just always thought, yeah, that makes perfect sense because every study shows that the more successful, strong, bold, happy a man becomes, the more people like him. And the more successful, strong, bold a woman, a woman becomes, the less people like and trust her, right? So it's an actual bell curve. And so women who are in any sort of um, living their lives out loud know that the world will only tolerate a certain level of confidence um, and success. And so we know that we have to undercut ourselves in the beginning of interviews. I used to, every time that I would talk about untamed or talk about, um, leaving my marriage for Abby, I would, I found myself in the first few seconds of every interview mentioning that my husband cheated on me and mentioning real quick that I'm a nonprofit leader. I raised tons and tons of money for women and kids. Mm -hmm. And the reason I was doing that is because I knew that people would need a permission slip to like me, mm. right? Yeah. Okay, well, it's okay that you did what you wanted, 
because you had the right to. So it's just, I stopped doing that. Although I just did it in this interview, but I have stopped doing it because I just want people, women to be able to do what they want without any permission slip from anybody. Right. Well, there's a Venn diagram of basically Beyonce. Uh, and that's it. The people that we let be fierce and love them anyway. Everybody else. And you're I mean, you're almost there, Glennon. Is this, this book is going to be number one for one more week. And that's it. We're going to stop liking him. So sorry. What a disappointment. I've got, I've got like six oh. minutes left, Sarah. I know it. I'm <laughs> you're enjoying so it close. now. You're... <laughs> the teardown is on its way. <laughs> Abby, why do we put other women down for being entitled? Because I feel like in sports, it's a little bit less of that, right? We rise behind our great women goats in sports a little bit more than we do in other places, but it's pretty rampant still. Well, our women's national team had and has a culture of truly supporting each other and really actually celebrating each other's wins. And I think one of the reasons for that is because we weren't afraid to turn up our own volume. Um, I think a lot of times when people are looking at somebody else and their success, this jealousy and fear rises to the top and then they're not able to actually make good decisions or see that they actually have more to offer. Right. So Alex Morgan scores a goal, Abby Wambach's like, yes, awesome. And now it's my opportunity to raise my level a little bit. And I think that especially women um, who have been told their whole lives to be quiet, to not be ambitious, um, to stay on the path, essentially. Women don't know actually how to turn up their own volume because they've never been given permission to do it. So yeah. I think that women athletes are given more permission because they're playing in a man's world and they also probably could kick the rear ends uh, of <laughs> any male athlete or any man that they're talking to or up against. Mm. Yeah, I want to get mm. to that in a minute. But first, to what you just said, I think there's an element of, of teammates and, and the wolf pack that you talk about in your books. And you talk about uh, pointers and rushers. When a woman scores, there's two options. We're either rushing or we're pointing. The goal scorer has to point at all the people who set her up to succeed. And the rushers have to go to her and congratulate her for succeeding. You're not going to win a sport if you aren't happy when your teammate scores, right? That's the goal that you're all going together towards. But but you, you also mentioned maintaining the illusion of scarcity is how power keeps women competing for the singular seat at the old table instead of uniting and building a new, bigger table. It doesn't happen as much in sports because you work together towards something. But everywhere else, there is this. Women are enemies. You should all hate each other because you're fighting for one spot. All the spots go to men, but you get the one and fight for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's why we have to forgive ourselves for, you know, every time someone says to me, I'm a guy's girl, first of all, I want to call 911. I just want to like get triage out and be like, dear God, what happened to you? Like, we have so much work to do. You're missing life. Okay. But also, we, you know, we have to forgive ourselves for having that knee jerk reaction of jealousy because that's not our fault. That's not innate in us. It was planted in us. It's because if we grow up in a world where at every single table there's 12 seats, and two of them are for women, right? Who's gonna be more relaxed in life? Who's gonna be more supportive of other people? The guys, because they don't play musical chairs as much as we do with each other, Mm -hmm. right? So scarcity, this idea that we have, that we have to knock each other down and that if another woman has success, it means less for us. It's been true, okay? That is true. And also this other idea we have that, oh, women are catty. That's, I hear that so much. Like women talk about each other behind their backs. I mean, I just, always think, you know, if little boys are taught to be direct with each other, 
And little girls are taught to be nice mm. to each other, mm-hmm. right? So we don't, you know, why, why can men just fight it out and get it over with? Just say the thing and get it over with, because that's what they were trained to do. Little girls, you know, women would be able to, would stop stabbing each other in the back if we were trained as little girls to just stab each other in the front and get it over with, right? (laughs) So this idea of being, having the, you know, the ability and the right to be direct with each other is not something that we learned as children and it scares us when it happens, Um, but we can practice it. We can decondition ourselves from that. It's still happening. A friend of mine was telling me about a a daughter and she didn't want to play with someone in class and just said, you know, I'm not interested in playing. And the teacher called home and said, we need to learn how to make her nicer when she doesn't want to play with someone. And she said, are you telling the boys that or are they allowed to just say I don't want to play? Um, And so it is. But but what you just said is so important because it's not just saying, okay, a scarcity has existed. And therefore, that's why we are conditioned to feel this way. It's saying that that scarcity is not real. It's something that's perpetuated by people who benefit from keeping that scarcity. And how, once we're aware of it, do we change it? And that's everything. And this book, Untamed, and the lessons in Wolfpack are all about that. It's basically not just be a a great woman and do whatever you want. It's figure out all the ways that you have been programmed to believe things, understand why you believe them, and decide if they're still for you and if they need to be a reality in the life that you're living. And I'm curious if you guys had a pivot point where you thought to yourself, oh, oh, okay, I don't have to buy all this crap. I get to decide uh, for myself whether these things are real or not. Or was it gradual? I mean, for me, um, it was kind of a... A really interesting moment. It was the ESPYs. I was on stage getting the Icon ESPY award next to Kobe and Peyton. <clears throat> and for me, up until this point, as a women's national team player, we had just won the World Cup. We had been received like like champions back here in the United States. And I kind of fancied myself. I was like, wow, we're really doing it, us women, right? <laughs> here we are. And then I find myself on the stage next to these legends, right? Um, and as soon as the lights turned off and the cameras turned off and the three of us turned to walk off stage, it like smacked me in the face at how different our retirements, the three of us were walking into would be. And, you know, their biggest concerns were where they were going to invest their hundreds of millions of dollars that they rightfully earned. But my biggest concern was how I was going to find a new job to pay a mortgage. Right. And this was the moment where I realized oh, I am not um, immune to the things that all women everywhere um, experience. You know, I thought that because of my status or my time on the national team gave me immunity to the patriarchy, but it's just not true. If this was happening to me, this is happening to every woman on the planet. So I had to reevaluate everything, right? Because I, back in the day, said that I was like a guy's girl. Yes, you did. I could, I could, (laughs) I could hang out with the guys, you know, like, but what was I doing? I was like, I don't know. It just feels like I just wasn't really honoring myself. I was just fitting in. I was taming myself. And you were enjoying your proximity to power. Yeah. Right. You were allowing yourself. That's what we all do. Like, I mean, probably a lot of people that are on this call are people who in some ways have gotten a seat at the table, Mm -hmm. right? Who, um, and and, and it is our tendency Mm -hmm. when that happens, just to let the door shut behind us, to to feel grateful that we have a seat at the table and to then assimilate to the culture at the table, which is how scarcity continues, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we say, okay, I'll accept my power to proximity 
And in return for that, I will not ask for any real power. And I will not stand up for myself. And I will not stand up for anyone who's not at this table. And I will be quiet. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So just blowing up, like getting to the table and then slowly blowing up the culture at the table mm -hmm. is is what the what privilege is for. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. good. And while you're on that, Glennon, something, you know, we do that in sports. Abby and I, we're like six feet tall athletes, so we've gotten into a lot of rooms because of that, and we've gotten that proximity to power. And fortunately, we've been aware, oh, this hasn't fixed anything. But we've been smacked in the face a little when we realized sexism is very real. When I went on a job interview and I got harassed, and I thought, oh, I don't get to be the one woman in this industry that doesn't get sexually harassed because I'm an athlete and because I'm tall and because I think I got this. Um, you get smacked in the face by it, and, it, and, it's, and it's the same feeling when you're reading Untamed and you get to the section on racism, because white women, that proximity to power allows us to skate through life feeling like as long as we're not actively racist, we're doing all the right things and we are benefiting over and over from the white guys and we are fueling the things that succeed, that cause them to succeed as long as we get to, to hang out with them. That chapter, I, I told you already on the podcast, you were on That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, shameless plug. And I told you, I was sharing pages from the book and reading from it completely illegally. Some sort of copyright laws probably violated as I shared it everywhere, took pictures of the pages. Talk about that because that was a major moment for me in the book. Yeah, well, I feel certain, and then I'll speak for myself, but I mean, honestly, it's all white women. But um, <laughs> I, I do feel that at some point, white girls, we just kind of make a deal with the devil. And it's just like, okay, I will accept my proximity to white male power. Right. Um, and, and, and enjoy the comforts that that offers me. And in return for that, I will agree to, um, again, not ask for any real power. Right. I will agree to, um, accept things like, okay, I'll accept the the um, protection from the police that 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 they they are created to offer me, but in exchange for that, I will never look over there and ask what police are doing in those communities. Mm. Right? I will walk into my kids' school and make sure that every single kid has nine freaking iPads, but I will not look down at the school down the street and ask why they don't have clean water. Right? I will over and over again accept the relative uh, privilege, comfort, protection that white supremacist see offers me but I will never um, confront. I will pretend I don't know about the destruction that white supremacy reigns on everybody else, mm. right? And so, you know, for me, it really comes down to once you understand that, it becomes your job to understand that you have just misaligned yourself, right? As a white woman, I have aligned myself over time with um, white men. And now with because there's so much racism and misogyny and um, uh, homophobia, all of it that we see right now, it is my job to align myself with everyone else. Well, because take... yeah, isn't that the the way that power wants it? The structure of power wants to. Sorry to interrupt you, no. but the power of structure, the, the structure of power wants to keep everybody they are in power separated. over separated and afraid of each other. Yeah, well, and we're the gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Right, we are the protectors. Right, right of white male supremacy. And, and what's, what's happening right now in our country is just that white women are finally understanding, oh, our proximity actually doesn't protect us at all. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. we were okay pretty much when everyone else was getting screwed. 
But now with this administration, we have finally realized, oh, we're going to get screwed too. So we have shown up. And that's, that's sad that it took us that to start showing up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think in every moment, like, how do I betray white supremacy in this moment? How do I betray? And, and, you, and you can betray it at any, you can betray it on a Zoom meeting when somebody shows their racism or their misogyny, like you can call it out. We have to stop protecting false peace and just be okay to make mm -hmm. racism and misogyny and homophobia uncomfortable in every area and just let it burn. Yeah. You said that today. Um, I will make sure every man who ever makes me feel uncomfortable, I'll make sure that to make them feel uncomfortable with their eyes or their gaze or whatever. I'll look at them and be like, what? Oh yeah, I did that today, that was good. <laughs> One of the things in the book that you mentioned that we can all totally understand is this idea of um, embedded messaging from society about our bodies and our beauty and everything else. Every woman can say, we understand how for our whole lives, magazines and media and otherwise told us we needed to look a certain way and, and, and feel a certain way in our bodies. We do not do the same thing with embedded racism. We don't understand what watching the show Cops at Night with our family did to us. We don't understand that media portrayals of black men and black boys made us feel a certain way. And until we acknowledge our own complicit behavior in that, until we feel the same way about that training as we do about beauty training and the way media affected us in that way, we're going to continue looking outside of ourselves for the problem instead of understanding our own involvement in it. And I think everyone needs to read at least that. I mean, the whole book, of course, and everybody has because it keeps selling. But that is such a big part of it. Um, the playbook of patriarchy is something that comes up in sort of both of these. And how do you look at what you've been told your whole life and understand what's useful and what's real? How do we start to actually see the things that we've looked at our whole lives and decide? Because a lot of people will read these books and be like, oh, I just accepted that. How do we actually see them? Uh, this is a you question. <laughs> well, I think we, you I'm know, still working on it. I think of some of these things as just like roots underneath the ground that control us and we can't see them. And they're, they're just like beliefs that we have over time that have been planted in us. You know, Walt Whitman says, we just ha said, you just, we just have to examine everything we've been taught in the world or in a book or in religion and dismiss whatever insults our own soul. Right. And I think that sometimes we have to, I, I remember when I was trying to decide, well, am I going to honor myself and follow this love or am I going to go back to my broken marriage because I was too afraid to rock the boat um, I almost abandoned myself because I was so afraid of hurting the children I was so afraid of being a bad mom and one day I was looking at my little girl and I I remember thinking I'm staying in this marriage for her but would I want this marriage for her and if I wouldn't want this marriage for her then why am I modeling bad love and calling that good mothering and this is the kind of experience that makes you realize you have bought a lie from culture and it's affecting your life. It is making you not make good decisions because the reason I thought that is because I have bought the lie my whole life that a mother is a martyr, mm. right? That what we do to show our love is just slowly die, just slowly bury our dreams and our ambition and our hopes and our feelings and our emotions, right? In honor of our children, which is such a terrible legacy, to pass down to our kids. We all know how hard it is to be a fully human woman when you have been raised by a martyr mother, right? And so that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this unconscious belief that I have, because in every realm, the culture plants ideas inside of women that tell them to disappear, okay? Whether it's like a good employee, a good female employee is accommodating, whether it's like a good wife is submissive, 
whether it's a good uh, mother is a martyr. It all means the same thing. It all means slowly disappear. Right. Yeah. So for me, it's it was reexamining that belief and saying, oh, a good mother is not a martyr. A good mother is a model. Right. If I want my kids to live freely and beautifully and truly, I have to do the same thing. And what I would just add to that is, especially with the race conversation, um, because like you, Sarah, when I read that chapter, it was years ago before, um, you know, when the book was getting edited and whatnot, I remember feeling like, whoa, I like it, like somebody just took off the sunglasses that I had been wearing my whole life. Right. Mm-hmm. And now the sun is so bright and I can't not see it. Right. And so it's up to every person to uncover their own internalized racism. Cause we all have it. Like every single one of us has it in us and it's not our fault. But right now that I know that if I don't do anything to cure my own internalized racism, then it becomes my fault. So mm-hmm. what we, we talked about in those early days is like, look, I'm not going to say much about it until I have actually uncovered more of why this has happened to me, mm-hmm. why this has happened into the world, educating myself on the actual history of this country um, so that we can start making our apologies and so that we can start creating the kind of country that that has been said that it is right the united states of america and i want to be proud but a lot of work has to go into it and it has to start inside each and every individual it's good it's the awareness it's the awareness and it's the same as understanding you know those embedded beliefs about everything else right first we have to say why am i mad at this 12 year old girl for being great at soccer and being proud of it (laughs) And why do I think a 12-year-old girl is entitled? She's just really good at soccer. She's not showing up. But you have to be aware. Why do I think that? Why have I been told in my life over and over again? And it's the same thing with that. You know, To what you just said about the sort of freedom that you give others when you allow yourself to be free, the model that you give to your kids. I remember I was prepping for this, and I messaged my mom. I said, Mom, why, why wasn't I worried about being loud and being an athlete and whether I have kids or not and whether what people think of me? And I think so much of it is being raised by someone who was working, who wasn't worried about gender norms and traditional roles and everything else, and and just modeled every day the behavior that is of a badass lady. Um, And you mentioned on Brene Brown's podcast that your son came to you and your uh, ex-husband, Craig, and told you that he's gay. And you thought, and, and Craig said to you instantly, what if you, Glennon, had not owned who you are? our boy might not have been brave enough to own who he was. For both of you, what is that feeling to wonder what your son would have gone through if you had never acknowledged that you fell in love with Abby, if you had never left Craig, and if he had wondered if he could be himself? I mean, it's what has happened with Chase and the way that our family, I mean, even Craig's reaction of saying, of that being his reaction. He could have had all kinds of different reactions. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it was so generous and so beautiful and just such a example of the kind of man that he is. Um, I felt, you know, I felt healed a little bit when you go through a divorce, even if it's the right thing, it's a hard thing and it hurts the kids and it's yes. painful and there's all kinds of collateral damage Um, and so to know, and it can still be right. You know, it's like something I have to remind myself every time I see all the little bags in foyer and it makes me sad that they're leaving. And I have to remember that something can be hard and hurt and still be right. Yeah. 
right? You know, that's a kind of a, a, a mantra for me, but it just felt like, wow, it is true that the more we give ourselves, all kids really need, all our friends need, all our, all anybody needs is to be fully, to have permission to be fully themselves. Yeah. That's it. That's all anybody needs, right? To have, to know that they can show up. That's our definition of family. You can show up at the table. You can change. You can grow. You can be different today than you were yesterday, but you will always be both held and free. Mm-hmm. And to know that the path, while difficult, is what is also what gave him that. Well, and the thing with yeah, Chase, like when he told us, um, I'll be totally honest, like it was one of the most intense moments of my life because, you know, when, when you're a gay person, one of the things that you're told, right. Is that the, the world out there says, don't ever have children. Cause you're going to make them gay. Right. That is, that has always been told to me from the beginning. By and people you loved. By people that I loved. Yeah. And so when this child brings us this information, my <laughs> first reaction was total shock and then fear. Yeah. And so my coming out story had a little bit of drama and um, trauma probably is the better word for me. Um, And what I realized is that my mom wasn't afraid of me. She was afraid for me because the same fear for me, for my son crept in. And I, even to this day, I have to keep reminding myself, like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. He's not going to go through the same life that you had to go through to come out and to tell the world that your story and who you were. So for me, there, there was so much healing in that, that, gosh, what a beautiful thing children can bring to your life mm-hmm. in terms healing. of healing those yeah. childhood traumas. Yeah. yeah. Glennon, in your book, one of the most powerful things you say about progress and our understanding and our better understanding of LGBTQ plus people or gender norms or gender binary, anything, is progress is just perpetually undoing our no longer true enough systems in order to create new ones that more closely fit people as they really are. People aren't changing after all. It's just that for the first time, there's enough freedom for people to stop changing who they are. It's such a beautiful thing because it's so simple and obvious, but so many people are fighting progress tooth and nail because they're just afraid of what they don't know and what they don't understand. And if they just simplified it down to let everyone be truly who they are and show up, how simple is that? How much easier is that than, ah, what are we labeling this and who are you and what are you? And that was one of the things I loved about this book too. And when I had you on the podcast and you said, you know, when you, when you decided to let yourself fall in love with Abby and tell the world and post this beautiful photo of you guys on the deck together in love, you said, I don't really care what people think about it. That's not on me. I'm fine. I'm great. I'm so happy. So you need to figure out why it would matter to you that I'm fine and happy and great. And you falling in love with Abby and the way you talk about it in the book is so romantic and also probably had a lot of women wondering if they were looking for an Abby instead of an Adam, but that might've just be me projecting and I'm married and I'm very happy. I'm just saying that the way you wrote about it, I was like, is that what happens? They just walk in the room and you stand up and bow to them like a weirdo. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well it did for you. And now everyone needs to read that part of course too. Um, but Abby, your book is uh, less flowery about how you met Glenn, and I expect that book is later to come. Uh, we would all like to hear the other <laughs> yeah, side of that, that story. <laughs> yeah, like when you walked in the room and this weird lady bowed at you and then asked for a hug like a creeper. Um, but in your book, one of the things you do get into, which I love, is 
the, the grateful stuff, because as women, we are told to be so grateful for everything we get. Oh, you're lucky you just get to play sports. Oh, well, in my day, you didn't even get to have a job. And, and, you, and you say, be grateful, but don't just be grateful. Be grateful and brave and ambitious and righteous and persistent and loud and demand what you deserve. So what's that moment where you start asking for things, whether that's a woman, a CEO, or you know, my sister-in-law who's in a small town in Wisconsin and recently became untamed and is now like, ah, let me out of what do I do in this small town? So how do you start that process of stop being just grateful and actually demand things? Well, gratitude is often the only emotion women are allowed. Mm-hmm. Let me repeat that. <laughs> gratitude is often the only emotion women are allowed right? It's like an idea that everything that we as women earn has been given to us, right? Mm-hmm. That is that is the system that's been set up that we are playing. Like that's just the, the world we live in. So for me, I understand the, the desire to want to just like turn it on its head and go out into the world and be like, give me everything I deserve. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is in order to actually go out and deserve it, you got to work. You got to put the time in because you can't just go around demanding the ball uh, and then not produce. Like the reason why that part of the book is so important to me is that Michelle Akers, she demanded the ball and she showed me what is possible to, when a woman steps into her power, when a person steps into her power, what is really possible. And what made it so unbelievable is that she actually delivered right now. This doesn't mean you have to be perfect because that's also another situation. We don't have enough time to talk about, but the (laughs) truth is we have to start practicing. We have to start practicing. Hey, listen, I think I deserve this. Um, you know, I want this and, and practice can start in your own home, right? It has to talk to your spouse. I need more time for myself, whether it's to, get more skilled at your job, whether it's to take care of your body, work out, meditate, eat better, whatever it is. Watch zombie shows. (laughs) Yeah. And know that this message of women only being, only being allowed to be grateful is ingrained in every part of our culture. Like the reason why we've, you know, who's not sitting around at night, writing in their gratitude journals, any men. (laughs) Don't have gratitude journals. Okay. They don't wonder all night if they're grateful enough to ask for a raise. Like this is, you know, I wear on my neck, I have more. I think more is the most subversive word that a woman can claim, right? Just like more, more power, more equality, more justice, more love, more money, more peace, more, more, more. And just know that you, the reason why we are trained to be ashamed of our desire, right? is because if we constantly just feel like, oh, this is good enough, I should just be grateful, mm-hmm. we will never challenge status quo yes. and power will never have to be shared. It's a great trick yeah. of patriarchy to try to shame us out of our wanting. Mm. Yeah, I love that it's grateful and though, because we know the importance of gratitude. We understand how it can help us through tough times, but then we don't stop there, then, then we ask for more. Um, Glennon, you know, your story is a sort of shining example of being able to reimagine yourself as something other than what you are. And yesterday we had this great quote, be ready at any moment to give up who you are in order to be what you could become. You gave up 
the addiction and the disordered eating and jail time and being away from family where you couldn't reconcile some of your choices with their love, uh, being married to a man, you know, all of these things. And you were able to see a completely better and brighter place to be. There are people right now watching this who are not there yet and they can't imagine finding the peace that you found and the fact that you now say, I don't, I want more of what I already have. I don't need to go find something to make me complete. What do you say to those people who haven't yet made that leap or who fear making that leap of, I have to change a whole lot and I don't know if the other side will look better. It's scary. Yeah, it's really scary. I mean, you can have whatever you want. You just have to be willing to give up everything you have. <laughs> so, I mean, not no every single thing. You gotta be willing to give up. Yeah, I mean, first yeah. of all, mean they, you're giving do know, they do know what they want, right? It's just like whenever a woman comes to me and says, you know, I can imagine more for my marriage, but I can't bubble up. There's always a million buts, and I should, but a good woman, but I should be grateful. But so when we hear the language of should or shouldn't or supposed to or can't or right or wrong, that's all indoctrination, right? So that's a person who's in their head. So my job is always to get people to jump from their indoctrination to their imagination. So the way that I always do that with women is I say, okay, stop. I know you can't. I know you can't. I know. I know it's impossible. But can you tell me a story about the truest, most beautiful relationship you can imagine? Mm. Right. You know, I know I should have more at my job. I know I, I know. I know I should have more purpose. I just, but I can't leave my job. Okay. Can you tell me a story about the truest, most beautiful career you can imagine? Mm. And then this amazing thing happens which is that the mind shuts down because the mind is just a, a hamster wheel of crap. It's like this just um, just excuse maker. So the mind calms down and, the, and then the imagination rises up and the imagination is the storyteller. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everybody, everybody has a story mm-hmm. that is deep inside of them about what their truest, most beautiful relationship looks like. And by the way, all of my friends want a different relationship. Okay. But most of them want a different relationship with the same person, Mm -hmm. right? They just haven't gotten to the point where they've shared bravely their needs and their um, dreams and their, it's such a scary thing to do. But what I know is that the truest, most beautiful life has to come to life one dimension at a time. It's like how an architect doesn't go from dream to building, right? They, they have the dream and then they write it down and then it gets built. So the starting place is always, first of all, when you feel discontent, when you want more, you tell yourself that maybe the fact that you can imagine more does not mean you're not grateful enough. Maybe the fact that you can imagine more means you were meant for more. Right. And you just start asking yourself unscary stories like, okay, what is the truest, most beautiful relationship I can imagine? And then we figure out that what's in our imagination is not our pipe dreams. It's actually our marching orders. Right. We all have blueprints for our lives and they're not out there. Nobody's ever made them because nobody's lived our life. They're in here. Mm-hmm. You guys, isn't she so amazing? Oh, I like yeah. to caught up sometimes. Like, <laughs> I know. Yeah, me, we all feel that way. We all want to be best friends with you guys. Trust me, everyone reading the book was thinking that. Everyone I told I'm doing this panel is like, oh, can we all be friends afterwards? I'm like, I'm working on it. Um, you know, one of the things you talked about is with your sobriety is um, feeling everything. And what's so much worse than feeling everything is feeling nothing. And that's the same message for someone who has this dream for something bigger and something more. What's so much worse than potentially messing up what you have is to never actually have what you want and to just settle. And, and that's such a message from this book. It's so, it's so amazing. 
I'm curious, when you talk about the knowing in the book, which is sort of just like your gut, and sometimes you label it imagination or knowing or God or whatever higher power, how do you know when something is your knowing telling you this isn't right for me versus anxiety stopping you and you listen to it and you let that fear prevent you when actually your knowing would be saying, oh, you can get through that, don't let this anxiety slow you down? Yeah, well, here's where I get a little bit woo-woo, Sarah. So here's <laughs> here's where we change from sporty spice to spirit spice, okay? If everyone went. You've been sporty spice this whole time? This is a sporty yeah, I don't think so, Glenna. Yeah, no. Mm. Off -side. Yeah. She hasn't weird. been sporty spice. You've been spirit spice. Okay, by the way, really quickly, since you mentioned offsides, we need more non-sporty people in our world because this is what you said about... <laughs> This is what you said about offsides. Uh, offside is canceled. The soccer moms have convened, and together we proclaim all those offside loves are visionaries ahead of the game, literally. Carry on, speedy runners. You are free. I mean, I just want you to write a whole book about soccer with, with insight like that. But back to what you were going to say. Uh, was it Scary Spice, or uh, what was, which Serious. spice are we now? Serious Spice. Yeah. I don't think that, that existed, but we needed one. Yeah. I mean, all I know, I'm, I'm someone who's dealt with, I've dealt with chronic anxiety and depression my whole life. So battling between what is real and what is my anxiety is my everyday activity. Um, what I know is that I am a person who was raised inside of a religion and inside of a culture that taught me as a girl that all of the answers were outside of me, right? That I was supposed to pray out there, not in here, that I was supposed to look to experts out there, not in here, that that there was a map for life, right? And I was supposed to ask out there and then follow somebody else's map. And all I'm talking about with the knowing is that it took me 44 years to realize that nobody else knows, that all I was doing was asking other people for directions to places they'd never been, right? Because no one else has lived my life. Nobody knows what the hell I should do. Not a minister, not an expert, not an author, not a parent, not a nobody, right? So all I mean by going inside for the knowing is that the biggest, I think, change that a woman can make in her life is not like a career change. It's not a religious change. It's not a political change. It's the change from going like this to going like this, from asking the world who she should be and what she should do, and just changing that posture to looking inside and trusting herself. And that is all I mean by the knowing. Yeah. I mean, returning to yourself and trusting yourself. It's like knowing all, all women and, and people know what they want, yeah. right? It's this knowing, but the, the how, like to put that into their real life, that's right. when you can find experts, right? Like, how do I create a good life? Like, that's when you sit down with the therapist, but we all have that knowing inside of us. We just have to learn how to honor it. And there are experts for some things, but for the big things, they're not. Like there's no yeah. expert or minister or book that I can go to to tell me who to love. Totally. Right? I'm, I'm not saying that. Yeah. That's the what I'm, I'm, I'm saying like the, the logistics of how is Abby giving yourself permission. Yeah. Okay, giving yourself oil. permission <laughs> for the thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, I could talk to you guys just forever and ever and ever. I want to quickly point out because I started with the things you're doing and we didn't talk as much about them as I would love because there's so much other great stuff that you guys can impart wisdom on. But deciding, Abby, to work with Natalie and everybody on Angel City FC and saying, if you're not going to let me sit at the table, I'm making a new table is unbelievable. Glennon, you saying, I need to use this white woman power and take all this money you guys are willing to give me and give it to 
predominantly women of color who are working and have been working in these communities and for these causes for years and do not get enough attention and funding. And this quote that you have in the book by Desmond Tutu, we have to stop just pulling people out of the river, go upstream and find out why they're falling in. It was another moment for me where people hide in their philanthropy. I'm going to give a bunch of money to a cause, but you're ending up being a foot soldier for the cause that you are against because you are just fixing the problem and you're not getting to the people who are causing it. We are doing that with a lot of things in our life, right? We get frustrated or angry or irate about something, and then we do the thing that feels the most comfortable or easiest to us to try to fix it. We need to go upstream more often, and you guys prove that. Oh, we're not allowed to own teams? cool, I'll just make a new one and it's going to be bigger and better and it's going to inspire everyone else to do that. Oh, I'm going to start a charity that raises $27 million. Most of them are, you know, $30 or less donations from all these different people. Um, this summit that I want everyone to, to keep in mind through, throughout was not just ideas and insights, but action. And we are out of time, but very quickly, if there is anything else that you wanted to add or that you want to try to drive home in terms of action, I would love to hear it because you guys are brilliant. I mean, here's the thing. My wife wakes up every day and this is what she does. I feel like I'm on the ride of my life, but the truth is taking that walk upstream is hard because you are walking through heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. It is not for the weary, but it is the most worthy and the most fulfilling walk of our lives. And we're going to just keep doing it over and over and over again until we die. Hmm. Retweet. How great are you guys? God, God, I love you guys so much. I want to talk to you for hours and hours and days and forever, and I want to move in. Okay, Thanks, uh, that was unprofessional. Thank you guys so much for being here, and thank you, <laughs> thank you for doing the work that you do. And if anyone has not read their books, I don't know what you're doing with your lives. Get on it. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Looking for having us, stalking you online. Love you. Oh, I'm a cheetah. Yes, and a wolf. Yes. <laughs> That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, it's people who have dug in their heels on their beliefs about COVID and refuse to educate themselves and update themselves with the ever-changing information that we have um, in a way that's dangerous for all of us. I just posted a long thread about this on social because I'm looking at the numbers going up across the country, and I'm hearing the same talking points from friends and strangers alike online especially complaining about protocols and shutdowns, pointing to mortality rates as the only numbers that matter. And yeah, death is the worst outcome of COVID, but it's not the only outcome. And a lot of people have said things like, you're healthy again in a week or two, uh, which is ridiculous. Uh, in fact, the thing that scares me the most about getting it beyond the obvious of, of suffering an immediate serious reaction or death and potentially giving it to others is what's unknown about the long-term effects. So if you haven't read about COVID long haulers, Please educate yourselves. There's a great New York Times piece called When the Doctor is a COVID Long Hauler. There's also a really powerful personal essay, uh, The Soft Butch That Couldn't, or I Got COVID-19 in March and Never Got Better. You can Google both of those and take a read because uh, there are thousands of people who were symptomatic mildly or asymptomatic when they had COVID and now months later can't walk up the stairs, can't pour a bowl of cereal, do other simple tasks. And if you haven't read about the brain fog, the uh, COVID brain fog, read that too. Uh, there's a New York Times piece, I feel like I have dementia, brain fog, plagues COVID survivors. Um, there's doctors saying there's thousands of people who have it and it's going to greatly impact the workforce. Uh, so we know that the effects of COVID on jobs, the economy, mental health, 
all of that, the shutdown, it's massive and we have to address it. But we also have to address the effects on the workforce, healthcare, economy, mental health in the future if people are sick and unable to work and not getting better. Because what good is it to be back at your job right now if you're incapable of doing it? What if you can't exercise again, go for a walk, play catch with your kid, just go up the stairs without struggling? Can you afford the pre-existing condition of having COVID and then a lifetime of that affecting your medical bills or a lifetime of hospital visits and treatments for the long-term issues? I'm not trying to cause a panic. I just feel like people are not continuing to educate themselves. They've decided how they feel about it and they're sticking with it. And there is new information that we need to use. One day if I snap, it's probably gonna be about this and that's not sarcastic. I really feel like I'm gonna snap lately these days because I was feeling confident and trying to be optimistic, but the way that people are ignoring it as the numbers go back up is terrifying. People are nowhere near as vigilant as they were months ago. So we need each other to get through this. Stop being stubborn or lazy or uninterested in knowing about the virus. Start reading again and listening to experts and acting accordingly. I know we all have COVID fatigue, but it's not going anywhere unless we actually listen to the experts and change our behaviors. And none of us want to be experiencing some of those things that thousands of people are months later after getting it. There. I fixed it? I don't know. If you have a dilemma for me to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Be sure to rate and review and subscribe to That's What She Said. And you can leave your dilemma in your review and maybe I'll get to it. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 